0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 1 of this presentation... There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Operation Anthropoid and the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. Now let's get started with our story about Operation Anthropoid. On May 27, 1942, at 10.30 in the morning, Reinhard Heydrich, the ruling Nazi military dictator of occupied Czechoslovakia, entered his Mercedes 320 convertible and prepared for the nine-mile journey from his villa in Penenska Brizani to the center of Prague. One of the most brutal and feared members of the Nazi hierarchy, Heydrich was appointed to the official position of Protector of Bohemia and Moravia in September of 1941 when his predecessor, Konstantin von Neurath, was deemed not ruthless enough to extract appropriate industrial production, the imposition of the complete subjugation of the western region of the former Czechoslovakia, and the removal of any formal resistance. Only five days after his arrival in the Protectorate, Heydrich imposed martial law and executed over 100 imprisoned resistance members awaiting formal trial. By 1942, over 4,000 individuals were detained, with approximately 500 suffering execution, and the rest deported to Mauthausen Concentration Camp, where only a small fraction survived. Heydrich actually improved working conditions to facilitate production that was crucial to the Nazi war effort, but his brutal repression so intimidated the Protectorate that he was rumored to be on the verge of a transfer to occupied France, and a duplication of similar methods. Heydrich was so ruthless in neutralizing most Czechoslovakian resistance that the exiled Czechoslovak government, operating out of London, made the decision to assassinate him a risky and possibly reckless endeavor. Even if the specially trained commandos who were assigned the task were successful, Nazi reprisals were sure to involve massive retaliation against many perfectly innocent members of the general public. Nevertheless, this plan was approved and implemented, and on May 27th, as Reinhard Heydrich made his way through the streets of Prague in his open-air chauffeured limousine, he was about to be confronted by individuals charged with executing this operation. As Heydrich arrogantly believed that no one would dare attempt to harm him, he traveled in the same predictable daily direction to his central office headquarters. About halfway along this route, a curve in the road forced Heydrich's driver, Johannes Klein, to slow down. It was at this location that Czechoslovakian resistance fighters Josef Gobchik and Jan Kubisch approached the Mercedes, Gobczyk wielding a submachine gun, and Kubisch carrying an anti-tank grenade. What transpired in the next few seconds would have profound implications for the Nazi war effort, the Czechoslovakian resistance movement, and the Czechoslovakian people. Unlike many of his unsophisticated Nazi colleagues, Reinhard Heydrich actually grew up in a musically talented, cultured family. Born March 7, 1904, in Halle, Germany, the second of Bruno and Elizabeth Heydrich's three children, his parents made a living running a conservatory that provided musical instruction to local students. Although his mother aspired to eventually obtain and operate the much larger family-owned conservatory in Dresden, her siblings prevented that outcome. Additionally, although Heydrich's father made a decent living, he never was able to achieve success as either an opera singer or opera composer a failure that he ascribed to an obstacle that resonated deeply within the entire family. Bruno's mother remarried after her first husband's death to a man named Suss. Although this man was not Jewish, this was a fairly common Jewish name, and the gossip among the locals was that Bruno, whose name was frequently officially recorded as Heydrich Suss, was actually Jewish. In the rapidly anti-Semitic environment of early 20th century Germany, this mere speculation was enough to professionally and socially limit the Heydrichs, and even affected Reinhard Heydrich during his childhood, when he was routinely taunted as a Jew by his classmates. Like his father, Heydrich developed an intensely militant nationalism, anti-Semitism, and even joined a youth group affiliated with the Freikorps, a right-wing paramilitary group of war veterans determined to eliminate the Jews and communists believed to have betrayed Germany during World War I, typical overcompensation that also marked Heydrich's adult life. The upheaval that swept across Germany in the early 20s deeply affected the Heydrich family. As economic hard times plunged the country into deep depression, the music conservatory floundered and Bruno Heydrich was compelled to apply for a subsidy from the local government, a request that was officially denied, merely reinforcing Bruno's suspicions that he was a victim of misguided discrimination. In 1922, his son Reinhardt was forced to make a decision about his own professional future. Despite his musical talent and proficiency on the violin, there was no future in a music career, and a university education was now no longer an option for his economically challenged family. Heydrich opted for the only entity that was hiring 18-year-olds, the military, joining the Navy with the official designation of Officer Cadet. Initially debilitated by the Treaty of Versailles, the German Navy was now at the core of the nascent military rebuilding effort that was intent on restoring German martial prestige and power. Reporting to the German naval port city of Kiel, Heydrich quickly was perceived as an outsider, especially when he showed up for training with a violin. This possession differentiated him from his lower-class compatriots as pompous and even effeminate. His high-pitched voice, tall, gawky demeanor, and lack of self-confidence did little to endear him to his fellow cadets. Another native of his hometown did him no favors, by repeating the rumor that he was actually Jewish. A lesser individual might have crumbled under this type of adversity, but instead, Heydrich thrived on his loner status, becoming technically proficient in wireless operations and passing language exams in French, Russian, and English. He completed his initial training, received promotions, and excelled in athletic competitions that included fencing, horse riding, and even membership in the naval pentathlon team. Heydrich's naval career progressed positively during the 20s and resulted in a promotion to sub-lieutenant and officer's rank. His career in the Navy seemed assured until Heydrich was tripped up by behavior that had also evolved from his initial youthful insecurity. Once shy and retiring, success in the Navy had produced an attitude towards women that was aggressive, and ultimately problematic. This chapter of Heydrich's life started innocently enough when in December of 1930, he met a young woman named Lena von Osten at a social event at Kiel. From a remote island in the German Baltic and the daughter of a schoolteacher, nevertheless, Lena's family had ancestral ties to the German nobility, an appealing background for an ambitious social and professional climber like Heydrich. Only weeks after their initial meeting, Heydrich proposed, and Lena, also probably impressed by the young German naval officer, accepted. By Christmas, Lena's father had given the couple his official blessing, and she remained at her family home for the holidays while Heydrich returned to the naval base in Kiel. But the official announcement of the couple's engagement prompted a controversy that resulted in an official Navy court of honor essentially a court-martial over Heydrich's conduct. This incident revolved around Heydrich's behavior with another woman from Berlin, who Heydrich was socializing with even after he met his fiancée. Heydrich's story to Lena was that he had met this young lady at another formal party, and, without any preliminary discussion, she eventually appeared at his residence, requesting to stay there having no other last-minute accommodations. While such behavior today would seem innocuous, in 1930, under the austere social codes that governed the German Navy, even if nothing sexual did occur, a female spending the night in a man's bedroom was considered quite provocative, especially if ultimately the man involved broke off the relationship, the woman at that point considered to be compromised. At Heydrich's Court of Inquiry, a different version emerged in which it turned out that he had interacted with the girl for months, most likely sexually, promised to marry her, and invited the young lady to socialize with him at Kiel, and, maintaining that a hotel was costly and unnecessary, suggested she stay at his place. Unfortunately for Heydrich, the never-identified young lady's father was a high official within the Kiel Naval Operations Unit and acquainted personally with Admiral Erich Rader, the head of the German Navy. Faced with allegations of conduct unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman, Heydrich did himself little good at the official inquiry by adopting a dismissive and arrogant attitude along the lines of, "'Boys will be boys,' and treating the woman in question as sexually aggressive and practically contemptible. The outraged court, which expected contrition and acknowledgement that his behavior was at least inconsiderate, even dishonest, responded by discharging him from the Navy in April of 1931, a punishment that was devastating to the young officer, unemployment at the height of the depression, a daunting prospect. Although Lena stood by him, marriage was impossible until he developed some other livelihood, initially teaching sailing at a yachting school, the only unappealing option for the former high-flying Heydrich. However, the von Osten family were already committed national socialists with family connections within the Nazi party. Heydrich was encouraged to join the party himself, a traditional military career now out of the question. By June of 1931, advocates were pulling strings to get Heydrich a position within the party administration. Nazi lore has it that Heinrich Himmler, appointed in 1929 as the head of the newly formed SS, was intent on developing a unit consigned with obtaining and organizing intelligence on both internal party members and external individuals of political and social interest, essentially an elite domestic spying apparatus. Heydrich's dossier was given to Himmler by a von Osten connection, and the Reichsfuhrer was impressed enough to summon the former officer to headquarters in Munich. However, at the last minute, the interview was canceled, a development that Heydrich and Lena perceived as a sign that he had been eliminated from consideration. Heydrich, encouraged by Lena, decided to keep the appointment anyway, and when he got to Munich, managed to wangle a 20-minute interview. As it turned out, the appointment was canceled mainly because of Himmler not feeling well, and he was doubly irritated by having to deal with an official matter during his illness. Initially resolved to quickly dispense with this annoyance, the Reichsfuhrer brusquely informed the candidate that he had 20 minutes to describe how Heydrich would organize a potential internal party intelligence agency. It probably did not hurt that the six-foot, blonde-haired, blue-eyed candidate exactly fit the Aryan physical prototype of the perfect SS man. Himmler was so surprised and impressed by Heydrich's thoughtful and detailed response that he hired him on the spot. Reinhard Heydrich, 27 years old, was now the head of what eventually became known as the Sicker or SD, literally in English, the security service. Not only did this resolution of Heydrich's personal professional crisis facilitate his eventual marriage to Lena in December of 1931, it also afforded him an opportunity to fundamentally shape the emerging identity of the rapidly growing Nazi Party. Like Hitler, Heydrich was one of many eventually prominent Nazis, motivated by a grudge against the German political and military establishment as well as the German upper class. Based on the treatment of his family and his personal dealings with the German Navy, Heydrich was now intent on extracting revenge for what he perceived as unfair slights and undeserved animosity. Despite a small salary and rudimentary working conditions, Heydrich quickly established himself with Himmler as a thorough and resourceful individual with a mind that retained useful information, that the Reichsfuhrer used in his own competitive quest for power within the Nazi hierarchy. Heydrich was a workaholic who practically attacked his new position, working long hours, even on weekends, to quickly assemble an extensive index card system that enumerated details about potential enemies. Himmler was an excellent strategic operative, but he needed someone like Heydrich to implement the structure that transformed the SS from Hitler's honorary bodyguard into the enforcement arm of a totalitarian police state. Heydrich responded to this new opportunity by making himself indispensable to the Reichsfuhrer. He was rewarded shortly after his wedding day to a promotion to SS Hauptsturmfuhrer, the organizational equivalent of Captain. In less than a year, Heydrich exceeded his rank in the German Navy. Hitler's appointment to the office of Chancellor in 1933 afforded Himmler the opportunity to seize and consolidate power by supplanting the existing German regional police hierarchy with members loyal to the Nazis and the SS. When Hitler abruptly dismissed the Bavarian state government, Armed SS swept into government offices and declared themselves the new leadership. Himmler was appointed head of the political police, with Heydrich as his second-in-command. Many rank-and-file law enforcement, despite their former inclination to arrest and prosecute Nazis, were retained in this new organization. It was felt that the SS could never physically replace all of these individuals, many of whom had no future outside of official government. Instead of the expected massive purge, they were afforded the opportunity to keep their jobs as long as they adjusted their loyalty accordingly. Most of them did just that. And this new police force also exhibited a brutal intolerance to those perceived as its philosophical enemies. Hitler sought unlimited police powers by act of the German parliament, the infamous Enabling Acts, which effectively suspended any civil liberties, and allowed Hitler unlimited governmental power. Passed on March 23rd, this development occurred simultaneously with the establishment of Germany's first concentration camp at Dachau in the state of Bavaria. Initially, Dachau was a kind of detention camp where former members of the political opposition, suspected communists, trade union officials, and Jews were interrogated and physically beaten and humiliated. Usually, most prisoners were released back into the community after a brief incarceration. Undoubtedly, their accounts of the brutality they suffered meant to instill fear and compliance within the general populace. Himmler and Heydrich's next intrigue involved assuming control of police jurisdiction in the northeastern province of Prussia, Germany's largest provincial entity. This was an ambitious objective, as Hermann Goering was politically in charge of all aspects of governance in this prestigious German district. But in the intrigue that led up to the infamous Night of the Long Knives, in which Hitler made a deal with the traditional German military to purge and assassinate the entire leadership of the SA, the street-fighting paramilitary entity that helped bring Hitler to power but was now considered crude and superfluous. Goering and Himmler also decided to coexist. In fact, Himmler and Goering conspired together on the preparation of a list of SA members and other various political enemies and designated them for execution. Ernst Röhm, leader of the SA, was an obvious objective, a combative figure who routinely implored Hitler to liquidate both the traditional German military and the remnants of the German aristocracy. That Rome wished to replace these entities with his own SA, an organization that contained millions of members, was not lost on the German Chancellor, who wondered if Rome might eventually become too powerful a force in his own right. Rome was also not a so closeted homosexual, and such behavior reflected poorly on the entire Nazi hierarchy. On June 30, 1934, the German military stood down while various execution squads consisting of SS members implemented a violent police action, not only against the SA, but also against various random political figures who had alienated Hitler along the way. These included not only Ernst Röhm, who was shot to death in a Munich jail cell, but individuals like Gustav Ritter von Kahr, the long-retired former state commissioner of Bavaria who assisted in suppressing Hitler's failed Beer Hall Putsch in 1923, and even Gregor Strasser, a former Nazi who ultimately resigned from the party in late 1932 after clashing with Hitler over political issues. Part of Hitler's rationalization for the execution of former colleagues Rome and Strasser was an exhaustive dossier most likely faked, compiled by Reinhard Heydrich, that indicated a 12 million Reichsmark bribe to Rome from the French ambassador. In return, Rome would liquidate Hitler and form a new government with Strasser. Most of the victims of this purge were murdered in Munich and Bavaria, but at least 150 of the dead, both SA and other individuals, including Strasser, were executed in Gestapo headquarters in Berlin under the personal supervision of Reinhard Heydrich. One of the police agencies formed under Goering's consolidation of power in Prussia was the Gestapo, a German acronym for the phrase the Secret State Police. Headquartered in Berlin, this agency was already involved in extralegal behavior to arrest and intimidate perceived political opponents of all stripes. Because Hermann Goering was mainly interested in gaining control of the German military, he agreed to allow Heinrich Himmler to assume control of any German police entity not already under Himmler's authority, most notably in Prussia and the Gestapo. In addition to his duties within the SD, Reinhard Heydrich was appointed as the head of the Gestapo. He immediately began transferring loyal personnel from Munich to beef up this agency and ensure complete loyalty. Throughout the rest of the 30s, Heydrich would head up the ever-expanding web of agencies that systematically persecuted the Nazi government's philosophical enemies. Jews, officials of the Catholic Church, and members of the German military perceived as opposing the establishment of the SS as a military entity— All were harassed and undermined at the direction of Himmler with methods devised by Heydrich that frequently involved forgeries, faked intelligence, and threats. World War II also provided Heydrich with opportunities to improvise tactics to support Nazi military aggression. To attempt to deflect blame for the invasion of Poland, Hitler demanded that a series of incidents involving alleged Polish military aggression be staged along the Polish-German border, allowing the German government to claim that its incursion was a defensive maneuver. This operation involved such chicanery as leaving dead concentration camp victims dressed in Polish army uniforms along the border and then distributing images of these individuals as Polish casualties of their invasion. Heydrich even choreographed the seizure of a German radio station by several SS personnel dressed in Polish military garb who broke down doors, waved around pistols, and imprisoned station personnel, their intent to have this attack broadcast live nationally across Germany. Although technical difficulties prevented that outcome, it underlined the cynicism of Nazi propaganda efforts and of Heydrich himself. Once Poland was militarily subdued, the SS was given the job of implementing the racist and anti-Semitic mentality of the Nazi leadership, especially Hitler and Himmler, again with the implementation delegated to Heydrich. The notorious Einsatzgruppen, or execution squads of the SS, roamed through the Polish occupied territories, killing thousands of civilians and appalled many traditional members of the German military. But complete success in France, the 1941 invasion of the Soviet Union, and above all Hitler's belief that Germany was locked in a death struggle against the global forces of Jewish Bolshevik inferiors, allowed the expansion of Heydrich's execution squads and organized terror. Ironically, the extreme brutality of the SS Einsatzgruppen presented the Nazi leadership with a dilemma in their desire to rid Europe of Jews and various other undesirables. The profound psychological effect that personal mass murder had on the German units that imposed the savagery made it clear that to undertake the type of destruction that Hitler, Goring, and Himmler at all had in mind a less personal, more technological approach needed to be adopted. Himmler deliberately assigned authority for the vast network of Nazi concentration camps to others, fearing that giving Heydrich complete control of this responsibility might lead to an abuse of power. But as early as 1941, Himmler did begin to assign responsibility to Heydrich for the development of a logistical process to transport especially Jews to extermination camps in Eastern Europe. A bureaucratically benign term for this institutional murder known as the Final Solution became Heydrich's official obligation. Because of the numerous government agencies involved, an actual discussion among all responsible officials was difficult to coordinate during wartime, but on January twentieth, 1942, Heydrich convened the Vonsei Conference, a formal roundtable coordinating the destruction of the entire European Jewish population under Nazi control. Most of the day-to-day operational aspects of this undertaking were delegated to Lieutenant-Colonel Adolf Eichmann, who began deporting and exterminating Jews in central Poland within weeks of this event. Publicly, Heydrich was idealized as the quintessential SS leader, combining physical and moral toughness with German propriety, a devoted family man and a good husband who did his duty in upholding his commitment to both the Reich and his marriage. Privately, Heydrich remained a notorious womanizer and a nasty sadist when drunk, which occurred frequently during frequent brothel crawls in Berlin and other European cities. His lower-ranking staff members compelled to accompany him during this debauchery. His marriage, supposedly the epitome of proper German matrimony and family life, was actually difficult his wife resentful over his prolonged absences, and Heydrich so suspicious about infidelity that he had Lena placed under surveillance. Heydrich's relationship with his parents and sister soured over the complete collapse of the Halle Music Conservatory and their inability to even pay basic expenses. Throughout the 30s, they continually asked for financial assistance from their more successful family member, but eventually he cut them off and did not even personally interact with them until his father's serious illness precipitated a final visit before Bruno Heydrich's eventual death in 1938. Heydrich sporadically sent money to his mother afterwards, but ultimately she was also ostracized until Heydrich's death in 1942, when circumstances allowed her to move into Lena's home as a caretaker for the Heydrich children. Although Nazi Germany occupied Czechoslovakia without firing a shot in 1938 and 1939, this occupation was confronted by various levels of resistance, much of this activity coordinated by the Czech government in exile, led by former Czech President Edvard Benes and Intelligence Chief František Moravec. The official entity within Czechoslovakia that coordinated with London was known by the acronym of the UVOD, and initially sporadic general strikes, occasional sabotage, and demonstrations were coordinated to demonstrate at least symbolic opposition to Germany's attempt to extinguish any Czech national identity. The UVOD also provided intelligence and military information to London via secret radio transmission, and there is some evidence that the Czech resistance sent advance warning of Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, although like many of these warnings, Stalin wrote this off as an Allied provocation. Always ambitious, Heydrich began to view the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, as the former Czech region was now referred to in Nazi parlance, as his stepping stone away from a subordinate role in the ss to a political role in an ever-expanding German Reich. Success in implementing policies that utterly subjugated the Czech populace to an extreme degree would only allow Heydrich to obtain promotion and authority over larger territories, especially as, in 1941, German troops were streaking across Russia. Heydrich began to undermine the current Reichsprotector of Bohemia and Moravia, Konstantin von Neurath. By cooking up statistics, overstating Czech sabotage, and a newspaper boycott orchestrated by the exile London government as proof that von Neurath was both complacent and incapable of the ruthlessness necessary to crush this supposedly grave threat to the Reich. Heydrich used information provided by Karl Hermann Frank, another Nazi official in the Protectorate administration, to aid in this process. Frank believed that should von Neurath be pushed aside, he would be appointed as the replacement. On September 21, 1941, all interested parties met at Hitler's East Prussian bunker headquarters to discuss the situation. First, Frank met with Hitler to enumerate issues and complaints concerning von Neurath and even was afforded the privilege of eating lunch with the Führer. But that afternoon, Heydrich arrived from Berlin and continued the briefing with an extensive recounting of how dire the situation was and an outline of the measures necessary to regain complete control. The next day, Himmler was also present, arguing for a fundamental change of leadership. Surprisingly, the power player who convinced Hitler to promote Heydrich was Martin Bormann, who believed that separating Himmler and Heydrich would weaken Himmler over time and stop this powerful synergy within the SS. Heydrich also removed from Berlin and consigned to some remote way station. Hitler wasted no time summoning von Neurath and advising him to take a long vacation during what was to be officially described as an extended illness. Frank was also shocked, expecting a promotion. He was now blocked by one of the most ambitious and ruthless members of the Reich hierarchy. By September 27th, Heydrich had installed his family in a luxurious villa outside of Prague, his frequently sullen wife now delighted at the prospect of serving as quasi-royalty, the spouse of the absolute ruler of the Protectorate. Swarms of SS and Gestapo were imported to implement an immediate phase-in of Heydrich's new approach, Martial law was proclaimed those unfortunate individuals already in custody for political offenses or deemed to be dangerous members of the leadership class were executed. Heydrich was already prepared with additional information about other suspects who were quickly apprehended, executed, or turned over to the Gestapo for interrogation before transport to a concentration camp and probable death. Through October and November, 4,500 individuals were arrested, their outright execution postponed by transport to concentration camps, Heydrich not wishing to completely destroy the morale of a population that needed to continue working in an industrial capacity. These prisoners were held out as hostages. If production increased, they might eventually be released. If not, they would suffer. Even before the official machinations at Vonsay, Heydrich began setting in motion the process of removing and exterminating the protectorate's sizable Jewish population. The transit camp and ghetto known as Theresienstadt was established in mid-November, and for most inhabitants, became a temporary way station before eventual transport to Poland and the death camps of Treblinka, Sobibor, or Auschwitz. This was another attempt to impress especially Hitler with Heydrich's zeal to address the final solution, an obsession among the Nazi elite. An estimated 80,000 Jews from Bohemia and Moravia perished in the Holocaust, virtually all of them transported via Theresienstadt. This repression not only completely neutralized any existing resistance infrastructure, it also cut off radio communication to London. Heydrich able to genuinely maintain in his numerous reports to Hitler via Bormann and Himmler that by December 1941, the Czech resistance was virtually non-existent. This prompted a pivotal reaction amongst the leadership of the Czech government in exile. To maintain his personal profile and also the national relevance and autonomy of his organization, Edvard Benesch resolved that some bold and decisive action must be undertaken even if it was symbolic, to reassert conceptually the existence of the Czech resistance. He also hoped that the operation was so bold as to serve as a catalyst for a massive uprising of the Czech population. This concept precipitated the specific plot to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich, codenamed Anthropoid. Secret commando agents had parachuted into the former Czechoslovakia already with very limited success. Most were rounded up and executed after only a few weeks of operation, but these agents came from an ongoing initiative assisted by the British Special Operations Executive, the SOE, to continue to infiltrate Czech operatives into the Protectorate. From this operation, two commandos were selected, Joseph Gobchik and Jan Kubisch, for the specific purpose of killing both Heydrich and Carl Hermann Frank this selection was carried out by Morovic himself, and only a few members of the Czech hierarchy, including Benish, were aware of the operation. Not even the British were informed of either the specific target or the individuals who were going to attempt what was referred to as an assassination of a prominent Nazi official. But the SOE did encourage a more thorough, well-thought-out approach, rather than the original plan to arm two men with a pistol and a few grenades, hoping they could improvise once they landed behind the lines. Unspoken by all involved was the understanding of the participants, including Gobchik and Kubish, that they would not survive the operation. Ultimately, it was decided that three separate teams would be dropped simultaneously, not only to attempt assassination, but to also restore an operating radio network in the protectorate. Gobchik and Kubish's armaments were also beefed up, The former would carry a Sten submachine gun, easily concealable, and the latter a specially modified anti-tank weapon, much more powerful than the typical grenade. It was not until December 28, 1941, that the British Air Command provided a long-range Halifax bomber to transport all nine of the Czech agents to three separate drop zones. The flight, with 16 men total, including crew, and a full load of fuel, did not allow for any evasive maneuvers in the event of detection. But the bomber made it across France and Germany without incident. Unfortunately, short summer nights meant that the darkness necessary for such an operation was only possible in the dead of winter. Thus, freshly fallen snow removed any opportunity to note landmarks identifying appropriate drop zones. Nevertheless, Gobchik and Kubisch went out first, the other two teams jumping shortly thereafter. For weeks, London only heard from the radio group Silver A, consisting of Alfred Bartosz and Josef Valchik, who warned the government in exile that the German security measures were extremely thorough, that any travel by railroad required impeccable identification, and that local communities were held accountable for any sabotage in the vicinity reducing the willingness to cooperate with any resistance efforts. By early February, with no information from Anthropoid or Silver Bee, London was assuming the worst and began to plan on infiltrating more teams, especially another pair of commandos who would concentrate on killing Reinhard Heydrich. There was good reason to write off Gobchik and Kubisch, from the very first moment that Gobchik misjudged his parachute's altitude and landed awkwardly, he could only walk with help from Kubish. They were also nowhere near their destination near Pilsen, but only 20 miles outside of Prague. After their landing, Gobchik hastily tried to conceal the parachutes as best that he could. Kubish located an abandoned cabin, which provided them with a temporary hiding place to eat some food and regroup. From there it was on to an old rock quarry and a reasonable hiding place in an abandoned tunnel. Their first bit of good fortune was that there was no German military or police presence in the area. It would have been simple, upon hearing the unusually low-flying aircraft, to deduce that some kind of espionage attempt was underway and daylight would have revealed flattened snow, footsteps, and possibly even the parachutes. A connect the dots effort to follow the footprints would have meant capture and execution. In fact, some enterprising and patriotic locals from a nearby village did just that. First, a game warden, who easily found the parachutes and even tin cans from the parachutists' hurried meal in the abandoned hut, spotted them in the quarry, the only possible hiding place for miles. Luckily, another local couple had a connection with senior members of the Czech underground that specialized in hiding individuals who were fugitives for any number of reasons. Gobchik and Kubish were guided to Prague, where they were first thoroughly interrogated by experienced resistance members to ensure that the two men were not double agents, actually sent by the Nazis to infiltrate the underground. One of these men, Jan Zelenka supervised the frequent movement of the two men from safe house to safe house and also replaced the poorly forged identity papers that would have gotten both arrested immediately upon any kind of official German inspection. A doctor also was found to work on Gobchik's injured leg, still bothering him from his initial parachute jump. The same doctor also helped forge special documents indicating that both of them were disqualified from working due to serious medical conditions, paperwork that allowed the two agents to explain their absence from a factory, or even worse, deportation for slave labor. While Gobchik and Kubish settled in, their counterparts were not so lucky. Silver Group A was tripped up when one of their members, Volchik, came under suspicion after an official routine check of his paperwork indicated a suspicious background. He was able to flee the small town he was hiding in with his two associates, but all three men's photos, submitted during an application for legitimate identity cards, were now posted in every Gestapo outpost in the country. Valchik wound up in Prague with the same resistance group that was shielding Gobchik and Kubish. His experience demonstrated the currently relentless pursuit and police presence in the country. On their part, having established at least some day to day security, Gobchik and Kubish understood that their time to implement any assassination attempt was limited. With a sense of urgency, they began to assemble the basics of a plan. Heydrich's executive offices were located in the Prague Castle, in the city center. He lived with his family at a villa at Penanska-Brizani, approximately 10 miles from downtown. Although security with numerous armed SS guards made an attack within either location impossible, the two men quickly developed intelligence sources through their local contacts that provided invaluable information. Because the Nazis had such contempt for the locals hired for menial and domestic responsibilities, there was little scrutiny of the backgrounds or activity of these individuals. Several employees were able to provide details about Heydrich's schedule, his regular route to and from Prague, and the remarkable information that he traveled without escort in an open-air Mercedes limousine. This was not a casually careless practice undertaken for convenience or environmental appreciation. In Berlin, Heydrich was almost paranoid about his personal safety. An alarm connected to the local police station installed in every room, including the bathroom. His limousines all contained numerous easily accessible weapons in the event of some assault. But in Prague, Heydrich adopted a different mindset a well-conceived attitude that he must impose a psychological dominance over the Czech people to instill in them the concept that they were too weak and timid to even attempt to harm someone of his invulnerable stature. For the commandos, this bravado was almost too good to be true. Clearly, their attack must occur somewhere along this route. The only question was, where? the assassins' plans were also complicated by their newfound desire to try and at least give themselves an opportunity for escape. The most obvious spot to kill Heydrich was along the straight road immediately accessed near his villa. Simply string a cable across the road and get Heydrich's car to stop or at least slow down. But this remote area was surrounded by empty fields, and even on bicycles, local SS would quickly set up roadblocks seal off escape routes, and descend upon the entire area, making escape impossible. The more cautious attitude of Gobchik and Kubish was dictated by both of their ongoing serious romantic entanglements, which fundamentally changed their perspective on mortality, with one of these women possibly even pregnant. By the end of March, Benish sent two more teams into the protectorate, one charged with setting up additional intelligence gathering in Moravia, the other to set up a radio beacon that would lead British bombers to the vast Skoda works, a giant armaments manufacturing facility. The results were disastrous. Of the six men who jumped, two were either immediately captured or committed suicide. The others fled without even attempting to carry out their missions. Instead, they focused on reaching out to sympathetic members of the resistance. Unfortunately, Edvard Benish remained impervious to the danger and difficulty faced by any clandestine agents parachuting into the region. He insisted on sending group after group into this perilous situation. Most of these men not only killed or captured, but also not before providing interrogations that doomed civilian contacts. Any survivors who made their way into the same network that was shielding Gobchik and Kubish merely strained this group's ability to avoid detection it was in this environment that other surviving commandos and resistance members on the ground began to attempt to convince both gobchik and kubish and the government in london to cancel the assassination attempt it was the belief of this contingent that even if the assassination succeeded any subsequent nazi response would be so virulent that it would wipe out any remaining resistance movement and also result in reprisal against numerous members of the civilian population. Despite heated discussions among their protectors, Gobchik and Kubish vehemently maintained that they had orders, and these orders were to be carried out. Having failed to convince the two men charged with the assassination to back away, communications directly with Benish in London reiterated the same pleas. It fell on deaf ears, Although historically unclear, Benesch either reaffirmed the order secretly and directly with Gobchik and Kubisch, or he did nothing at all, leaving the initial commands intact. Unbeknownst to all of the conspirators, they were also running up against another unforeseen deadline. Reinhard Heydrich had observed the patchwork organizational chart that designated various Reich's commissioners for authority over assigned occupied territories. It was Heydrich's ambition to convince Hitler that instead of merely relocating him to some other larger geographic area, the Fuhrer should designate him as the overall police and security authority over all of the occupied territories. A meeting was scheduled in Berlin in late May, Hitler returning to the capital for an official ceremony where Heydrich hoped to propose such a designation. In any case, it was highly unlikely that Heydrich would return to the Czech region. If his grand idea to consolidate authority over the occupied territory stalled, most likely he was headed to France or some other weightier assignment. His mission in the Protectorate of completely neutralizing the resistance there successfully implemented. In the days leading up to Heydrich's potential reassignment, this intelligence was eventually relayed to Gobchik and Kubish. Having completely examined Heydrich's typical route into the city, they quickly settled on a spot in the suburb of Holacevice, a hairpin turn right before an intersection and a descending hill leading to the Traja Bridge across the Vlatava River. Aware that Heydrich might leave at any moment, they decided that the morning of May 27th was the day they would strike. They included Joseph Valchik as a lookout to signal them from the top of the hill that Heydrich's car was coming. But long after Heydrich's expected arrival, shortly after 9 a.m., there was still no sign of the SS flag festooned limousine. The protector of Bohemia and Moravia had spent much of the morning playing with his children and was taking his time after a late evening the night before. Exhibiting a rare display of sentimentality, Heydrich had organized a concert at the Wallenstein Palace with music from an opera entitled Amen, composed by his father Bruno, played by a string quartet that studied at the conservatory in Halle. Afterwards, he hosted a sumptuous banquet at the Hotel Avalon, socializing with each guest in an uncharacteristically warm and engaged manner. He was in an excellent mood, perhaps looking forward to the 27th, not a typical grueling 12-hour workday. Instead, after a brief stop at Prague Castle, he was scheduled to head to the airport and a flight on his private fighter bomber to Berlin, and his critical meeting with Hitler to decide exactly what his future held. It was not until about 10.30 that Volchek flashed a handheld mirror, the signal that Heydrich's car was approaching. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Operation Anthropoid. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Killing of Reinhard Heydrich by Callum MacDonald and Hitler's Hangman by Robert Gerwarth. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation... Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige on YouTube.com, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, please leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.